Okay, now we're recording. The second housekeeping item is I misspoke last week when I spoke about the ELCA bishop uh, as being a lesbian. Um, she's married to a man, so I did not know of that. She's married to an Episcopal pr uh, priest who's a man. But having said that, so I wanted to correct that for the record. But having said that, uh, the bishop, who's a woman of the ELCA, the Evangelical Church of America, she is totally woke, and she wants the ELCA to be relevant, and so she's all for everything that's anti-scripture. And that's not an exaggeration. I'm going to say this, that generally speaking, in the Protestant churches in America, generally speaking, in the Protestant churches in America, uh, anything goes except historical Christianity. Okay. Now, so that cleaned that up. There are any questions on that? All right, now let's look at the sheet that I've given you, fatherhood. Now, this is based upon Ephesians, what we're going to study here. We'll start it, and then we'll take a break. But in Ephesians chapter 6, it's not on the front page, but I'll just say it now. In Ephesians 6, Paul gives fathers a vocation and a task, and that is to teach their children God's word. Okay, and we're going to, as we get along here in the next few weeks, after the apology stuff, the defense of the faith, we're going to get back to this. But first, before we get into Ephesians 6, generally speaking, God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three persons, one God. But the first person of the Trinity is God the Father. And so all fatherhood, listen carefully, all fatherhood flows out of the fact that God is Father. So let's take a look at the sheet. The Bible passage on the top says from Ephesians 3, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father. That's God the Father from whom every family, or all fatherhood, in heaven and earth is named. More on that in a moment. Namely, all fatherhood in heaven and in earth is named, based upon the fact that God, the first person of the Trinity, God the Father. So below the picture, well, let's talk about the picture just briefly. This is a picture of the Holy Trinity on your sheet. And you'll notice God the Father, who's he holding in his arms? His Son, eternally begotten from the Father, is Jesus Christ, His Son. And here we get to the heart of who God is. Giving His Son into death on the cross for our salvation. So if you want to know what kind of God you have as Father, it's God the Father who gives Himself in His Son to die and atone for all your sin. That's pictured here in the, the artist rendering of the Trinity. Now the, the Holy Spirit's above as the dove, because in the, in the Bible the Holy Spirit usually takes on the form of the dove, like for example at our Lord's baptism in Matthew 3 or 4. Alright, so our Heavenly Father. It's interesting, Jesus when he says, when you pray, pray this way. What's he say? Say, our Father who art in heaven. So this is how Jesus taught us to pray. And I don't know if you know about this or not, but in the New Testament Jesus uses Father more than any other name for God. And so why? Well, by doing this, Jesus expresses his particular father-son or father-child relationship that he then, Jesus, extends to us through his salvific ministry, namely his death and resurrection. So in the Holy Trinity, the Father has always been and always will be Father to his only begotten Son. So again, by way of review, I said it earlier, but it bears repeating. Jesus is the eternally begotten Son of the Father. 
What does that mean? It means that Jesus never had a beginning, will never have an end, eternally begotten of the Father. Now that's important because you have false teachers that say that Jesus had a beginning. And I'll just do this by way of review. The false teacher in the fourth century, his name was Arius, who said that Jesus had a beginning and that Jesus was like God, but not God. And so take your, your hymnals on the table, take your hymnals on the table, go to the inside back cover, the very inside back cover, and look at the Nicene Creed real quickly. I know this is off topic a little bit, but it's very important to reemphasize this stuff. Because the Jehovah's Witness, come, they come around and they knock at your door, and they're the modern-day followers of Arius. They're the false teachers that follow Arius from the 4th century. So in the 300s AD, you had Arius teaching this. Jesus had a beginning. He's like God, but he's not God. That's not what the Bible teaches. And so there was a big argument, if you will, in the early church. And of course, the emperor, remember, Constantine has already made Christianity the state religion of the Roman Empire. And so he wants all his Christians on board. He doesn't want division in the church. And the false teachings of Arius about Jesus was winning the day. It was the majority. And you have one bishop named Athanasius. We have a creed named after him. What's that? The Athanasian Creed. Athanasius said, no, Arius, you're wrong. And the followers of Arius, most of the bishops in the church were followers of Arius. And Athanasius stood against them all and said, no, no, absolutely not. And so he lost his position as bishop in the church, was actually put in jail for confessing the truth. And so in, in 325 AD, in a Greek city called Nicaea, there was a church council held. And thanks be to God, the biblical teaching was upheld against the Arians. So notice how the anti-Arian stuff is put in the Nicene Creed. Look at the second article of the Nicene Creed. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, notice, begotten of his Father before all worlds. That means eternally begotten of the Father. He did not have a beginning. And who is Jesus? He is God of God. He is light of light. And against Arius, who said, Jesus is like God, but not God, what does the Nicene Creed say? Very God, a very God. And now, begotten, not made. That's anti-Arius. That's anti-Jehovah Witness. And then, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made. Jesus isn't the first of all creation. He created everything. That's, for example, taught in John's Gospel, in Colossians, etc., any questions about that? All right, let's go back to the sheet then. That was kind of a side note. But again, I think it's worth mentioning. So is God like, is the first person of the Trinity like Father? So when we say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, are we saying, well, the first person of the Trinity is like Father? No, he is. He is. I'm at the very bottom of the sheet. That is a fact. The essence, then, of what it means to be a father is not found in Brent Kuhlman. It's not found in Tracy Prey. It's not found in Wes Laughlin or any of you gentlemen. The essence of being a father is found in God the Father, not human fathers. So this may come as a shock, but here goes. And it's true, by the way. God the Father exercises his fatherhood through, da-da-da, earthly fathers. 
So the word Father then describes exactly who the first person of the Trinity is. He is not, namely, God the Father is not like Benjamin Franklin taught. Remember, he was a deist. Benjamin Franklin essentially taught that God was a deadbeat dad. I'll keep reading to explain. So God the Father is not as the deist taught, like Benjamin Franklin taught, namely a creator who gets everything going, like winding the clock, setting it down and just letting it go, and then takes off to let everything fend for himself. When, 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 God, the, when God the Father reveals himself to us as Father, it means that he loves what he creates, and he's not a deadbeat dad. He doesn't take off and leave what he creates. He stays with it. He preserves it. He takes care of it. And he redeems it. And he holies it. So God the Father actually uses his creation, namely human fathers, as his instruments in creation. And what's one of the primary things? To have children. So if there's only women in the world, there's not going to be children. So do this experiment. Those of you who are woke, <clears throat> let me get my water before I continue. It's over here. Thank you. Yeah, for those of you who are woke, let me ask you to do this experiment. Let's put 10, ten uh, women. No, let's do it this way. Let's do it this way. Let's put 10 men. Let's put 10 men on an island and isolate them for 25 years. I'm talking about men who think they're women. They dress like women. They put nail polish on their fingers like a woman, et cetera, et cetera. When we come back in 25 years, there's no women on the island. And they're never allowed. What will we find in 25 to 50 years with these men? They'll all be dead. No kids. They can't have any. But so that's why God and that's why our Sunday school opening is so important from Genesis. He created them male and female and thus husband and wife. And so how does God create children? Through a father hooked with a mother, male and female. That's primarily what God the Father means. And so fathers, if you've ever wondered what it means to be a father, <coughs> it means this, that you procreate, you have children, and then you, you take care of your children. And that's exercising fatherhood. And as we're going to learn, looking ahead from Ephesians 6, that means making sure that one of the main things that you do as father in taking care of your children is that they know the Ten Commandments, the Creed, the Lord's Prayer, other parts of Bible, uh, etc. It's extremely important that dads do that. And as they do that, they're faithfully exercising fatherhood in their homes. All right. Next paragraph on page 2. So the word father describes exactly who God is. He's not as the deist taught. Now let's keep going. Let's go to Ephesians 3. You got your Bibles? Let's go to Ephesians 3. <coughs> so Galatians and then Ephesians. Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, then Galatians and Ephesians. Ephesians 3, we're going to start at verse 14, part of which we read earlier. Now what we want to do as we read these verses, Ephesians 3, 14 and 19, is we want to look at what the text says about what God the Father does for us as Father. So for the sake of time, I'm going to go, starting verse 14. For this reason, I kneel before the Father from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Verse 16, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he, God the Father, may strengthen you with power through who? His spirit in your inner being. How do you spell that? F-A-I-T-H and then the strengthening of your faith in him. 
verse 17. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts. How do you spell that? F-A-I-T-H. Through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love. Isn't it interesting? Faith and love. Both words almost in the same verse, right? Faith for salvation. Love for the sake of serving other people. Established in love may have the power, may have power together with all saints. And what's the power with all believers? To grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge. Namely, that God the Father sent his son Jesus Christ to die for you. And thus the picture on page one. That you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. So there's two, ver two words, faith and love. This is what God the Father wants to happen in your life. Faith in his son Jesus Christ who died for you. And then fathers, as you exercise headship in a family, you take care of and you love. Okay. Any questions about that? Okay, look at the sheet then. Underneath the passage we just read. So very interesting in Ephesians 3 here. The word for father in the Greek is, and you've heard this term, like pater familias. What's the movie? I'm trying to think of the movie. Uh, with uh, George Clooney and they break out of jail. Oh, brother, where art thou? He's constantly saying pater familias. <laughs> Remember that? Rewatch it on Netflix or whatever. But the Greek word for father is pater. The word translated as family then flows from that. It's patria. So pater, father, patria, family. They're related to each other in words. So the term uh, patria means a set of individual families in which all have a common father. So the English translation of pater and patria has a hard time reproducing the play of these two Greek words. St. Paul's point in Ephesians 3 with these two words is this. Don't miss this. From God the Father, listen carefully, from God the Father, all lineages of fathers are named. So what does God the Father do according to Ephesians 3? Or what, ha what does God the Father want for you? The text says that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And that you would know the love of Christ and be filled with the fullness of of God's love. Now a quick side note if you will. But it's piggybacking on this F-A-I-T-H word. Listen very carefully. This is a huge problem in the church. This is a crisis. That when we hear the word faith. We think only in this way. That it's knowledge. That I get all the facts right. And that's true. We need to get the facts right. Was Jesus conceived by the Holy Spirit? Yes. Was he born of the Virgin Mary? Yes. Did he suffer under punishment? Yes. Was he crucified? Yeah. Was he? Yeah. Got to get those facts straight. But if that's all faith is, you're not saved. And a lot of Christians think that if they just have all the facts right, they can do anything they want. No. Nope. That's not faith that saves. What is faith that saves? It's getting all the facts right, but knowing what? What have I taught you? Where am I going? It's what Kuhlman says in sermons all the time. For you. So, did Jesus die on the cross? 
Yeah, the devil even knows that. He's got the knowledge. He, he knows all the facts. Unbelievers, they know that Jesus died on the cross. And many unbelievers know that Jesus rose from the dead like the devil. But the gospel is this. That Jesus died and rose for you. That's why when you come to communion, I do not say just the fact. I do not. I, I, there, you may experience this when you come to communion somewhere else. The body of Christ. Or the blood of Christ. Is it the body and blood of Christ? Yeah, it is. But that's just stating the facts. It's not yet the gospel. The gospel is the body of Christ for you. That's why I've instructed the elders that when they distribute the Lord's blood, they say the blood of Christ for you. You lose the for you, you lose the what? The gospel. By golly, folks, the angels knew better. You know, when the angel came and preached when Jesus was born, he did the for you gospel preaching. He didn't just say, now in the, in the town of David, Jesus is born. What did he say? In the town of David, a Savior has been born unto or for you. When Peter in Acts chapter 2 references people for baptism, because they asked, what should we do? He says, be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Spirit. And this promise, namely forgiveness, gift of the Holy Spirit, is for you and for your children and for all. I'm going to repeat this. This is absolutely important. So God the Father, is he God the Father? Yes, but that's not the gospel. God the Father is God for you and for your salvation. Bingo, right here. So how do you evaluate sermons whether the gospel's been preached? I'll tell you how. The preacher had better say that this death on the cross was for you and for your salvation. Let me illustrate this one more way to clinch the point. So you have a headache. And then you'll remember all day, Kuhlman couldn't get over it. Now imagine, let's say Nolan, let's, let's pretend that you're on the speech team and you're gonna have, you're gonna go to your speech meet and you're gonna debate. That's your topic, you're gonna debate. And so Nolan, at the beginning of his speech on debate, he goes up to the podium and he says, my name is Nolan Stroy. I have 10 minutes in which to give my speech. Here is my topic. I can't call my opponents by names, etc., etc." Now, what has Nolan just done? He has recited the rules of the, but he hasn't debated. Make sense? Now, let me push this to the church. I can get up in the pulpit every Sunday and I can say Jesus died on the cross. I can say that Jesus rose from the dead. Are those things true? Yep. And I can even say this, that we are the justification, namely salvation, is that we are justified by faith in Jesus through, through grace alone. Is that true? Yes. But have I preached the gospel? I have not. What have I just done? I have simply cited the grammar of the scriptures. That's all. I haven't preached yet. The true preaching is when Jesus hooks the for you to the Jesus death. The for you to his resurrection. Okay. So this is why to finally clinch this point. So it, it, you'll have to have a lot of mercy on a lot of clergy these days who haven't learned this very well. Or some of them just flat out reject it. They refuse to say it. You may have to take them out for lunch. Take them by the ear, give them a really hot cup of espresso and chocolate pie, and say, Reverend, when I come to communion, I want you to tell me that that body and blood is for me. I know it's the body of Christ. I know that. 
but I want you to tell it it's for me. And this isn't Kuhlman's private itch, by the way, brothers and sisters. I want you to not misunderstand. This is not Kuhlman's little <laughs> private itch. Once again, as I was preparing during Advent for Christmas and all the Advent services last year, I reread some sermons by Dr. Luther on the Christmas texts, like Luke 2, etc. And he makes this point over and over and over again. So it's not my private little itch. You may think it is, but it isn't. Now, you ready to take me out to the woodshed? You probably are. All right, so let's go back to the sheep. Bottom, there below the picture. So then learn then what the Father's love is. He grants then, notice, he grants according to his riches. So if you want to know what it means to live under the fatherhood of God, you learn to receive. And this is the next point I wanted to make, with faith. Faith can be knowledge, and you've got to get the knowledge right, and you've got to get the facts right. And so when, when Christians speak about faith, primarily that it's for you, and what does that mean then? It means that when Jesus says, do this as often as you, you're going to do it. Namely, faith will then be first and foremost be receptive. That is to say, it will be passive. And that's why in the New Testament, when you read Paul's epistles, you will, you will hear Paul talk about this, this devotion or godly life or this pious way of living, depending on the translation. I'm going to repeat. Check me out on this. You take notes tonight, you insomniacs. And read Paul's epistles like 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus and the other epistles. And he will use this terms about godly living or holy living. And that Greek word that is translated in many ways in English can be simply summarized this way. That the holy life, the godly life, is the life of faith which is first and foremost given to. Given to by the Lord. And so that's God the Father. He, he gives gifts from his magnificent treasure. And then this teaches us to not be stingy. So God's love for us flows into our life through the Lord Jesus Christ. And then that love of God in Christ to us then flows out of us into the world and to others. So faith is passive and it receives. And then faith is passive and, uh, pardon me, active and living. And that love given to us through Jesus then flows out of us into the world. And that's why Christianity grows in the world where this stuff's taught and acted. So he strengthens with his power. He reaches into our inner beings, our hearts, our bodies. Brothers and sisters, one of the main things in the Bible, if you haven't noticed, is that God actually dwells within you. Now, we're not Gnostics in this sense. Gnostics teach like Oprah Winfrey. Is she still alive? Yes. Good Oprah, who has, you know, the O magazine and their show, you know, She's a Gnostic. She believes that you have a spark of divinity within yourself, which means that you are divine. And you need, to, you need to exercise your divinity. Now, when the Bible teaches that God, the Holy Trinity, dwells in us, that doesn't mean we're divinities. We're still creatures. What it means is that God loves us so much that he redeems our bodies, he redeems our souls, he redeems our minds, our emotions, etc. And then he actually dwells in us. For what purpose? Just to twiddle his thumbs? No. Why does the Holy Trinity dwell in us? So that God can extend his love to others. Through us. Through our hands. Through our mouth. Etc. And with regard to fatherhood. You, I just mentioned it earlier. Okay. 
So, fatherhood for God, then, is not a checklist. It's not a reward or punishment, but loving service. He brings ungodly sinners like you and me into his family in order to generously show and give his love for us as in his only begotten son, Jesus, who suffers, dies, and rises bodily from the dead on the third day. So what kind of God do we have as God the Father? We have, a, we have a God who lives outside of himself. Let me put it to you this way. If you've been Greeked, that is to say, if you've been Platoed, Plato, or if you've been Socrates, Socrates, or if you've been Aristotle, Aristotle, Greek philosophers, if you've been Greek, you think that God sits way up there that you can't get to, and all he does, 24-7, 365, is all that God does is look at himself, talk to himself, and he's only concerned with himself. He never looks down on us. He's not concerned with this mess down here on this earth at all. It's just the opposite. What does it mean for God to be God and God the Father? It means that God lives outside of himself. God looks and sees what's going on, how we need a Savior to save us. Huge. So the direction that is from God to us with Christianity, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven, right? Let's go to Luke 15. Here we see the fatherhood of God the Father extended in a parable that Jesus tells, which you all know, but we're going to take the time to read it. Luke 15. This might help you as an earthly father when maybe your kids go off the rails. <laughs> and when they come back, what do you do? You know exactly where I'm going. Now, before we read this Luke 15 parable, you know, the parable of which I would like to call the waiting father, the waiting father, the giving father. We've, we've named it what? The prodigal son. Perhaps we've misnamed it. Y'all there? Now keep in mind that Jesus tells two other parables before he tells this one. The parable of the lost sheep in which the, she the shepherd risks his entire business. I mean, who in the world goes after one lost sheep and leaves the 99 behind? <coughs> leaves the 99 exposed to the wolves. And I'm a Glenrock sheep herder. That's where I grew up. Sheep herders. A shepherd who leaves all of his flock to get one is an idiot because the wolves are going to get the rest. You'll lose, you'll lose money. So you just write it off. Similarly, the lost coin. You just write it off or claim it on your taxes. Okay? And now lost son, if you will. So Jesus continued, verse 11. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of this, the estate. Now that doesn't happen until what? When, when does a father give his inheritance out? While the kids are still alive? No, when, when does that take place? After the old man dies, and then his will is read by the lawyer. You've got to go to the lawyer's office and have the will read, right? But now, this young man, he doesn't want to, he doesn't want to wait. He does not want to wait until his father dies. He wants his share of the inheritance now. And the father does what? He essentially says, you want me dead? Well, I'll, I'll pretend I'm dead. And so what does he do? He divided his property. And notice the language, not between just the one boy, but between both of them. Both of the boys get the inheritance before the old man dies. You want to talk about generosity? Now, most of you are saying, how reckless that is. But see, this is God the Father. 
He will give and give and give, and he gives recklessly, even when it just is just scandalous, he gives. And of course, this is the most scandalous thing, that he gives his son into death so that you receive a, an eternal inheritance. Not long after that, verse 13, the younger son gets everything that he's got, but gets it together, goes to a distant country, squanders all of his wealth in wild living. It's kind of like, you know, going to the casinos, going to the bar, you know, that kind of thing. Now, I'm not, I'm, don't misunderstand me. You want to go to the casino? Fine. You want to go to the bar? Fine. But this is wild living stuff. This is profligate. You ever heard of that word? Profligate. It's just wasteful, wasteful spending of his wealth. By the way, why does God give us money and possessions? This is why some Christians are against gambling. And they have a good argument. Why does God give us stuff? To waste? To take care of each other. Yeah. So let's just, for the sake of arguing it here, clinch it. So Kluben gets a paycheck this week, or at the end of the month, gets a paycheck, and then goes to Council Bluffs, wastes all of it. And then Robin says, didn't you get paid? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and then I get the third degree. She's not in here, is she? So I can say that. <laughs> so after he spent everything there, there was a severe famine in that whole country. He began to be in need. Verse 15. So he goes and he hires. He's desperate. This is a Jew. A Jew. And he hires him out to a, a Gentile of that country and sends him to feed pigs. And for a Jew, of course, pigs are unclean and you're not to associate with them, let alone eat them. So he longs to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. How odd that is. The father gave him everything, and now he's got nothing, and no one will give him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men, father's hired men, have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. So now he's going to make a plan. He's going he's to set things right with the old man. Now, this is very important. He makes a plan in which he will be the one who will reconcile this relationship to his father. That's critical. So again, let's read. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven. What does that mean? I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned against God. That's what he means there. Is that true? Yep. And against you, Father. Is that true? Yep. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Is that true? Yep. Now here's the kicker of his plan. Make me. That's a command. That's an imperative in the Greek. Command. Imperative. So he's calling the shots. He's going to reconcile the relationship. How? Treat me or make me like one of your hired men. So I'm not worthy to be a son anymore. I'm going to come back home, and I won't be a son. I'll be like one of your hired men. Now again, to emphasize, who's calling the shots here? The old man or the son? The son. Let's keep going. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, who sees him? Daddy does. And he's filled with compassion for him. Now in the Greek, that filled with compassion means his guts are just spilling out all over the place. And that is a Greek verb that is always referenced to God. This is mercy. His guts are just spilling out. So he has compassion on him. And isn't it interesting, the father does what next after compassion? 
What's he do? He runs to his... Now, in, in America and in English, we have no clue what this means. We really think that's no big deal. But in the ancient world, this is huge. So the father who has compassion on a son who sinned so badly against his father, he runs out to his son. Why is this important? Let me illustrate. The next time you see the United Nations meet in New York City and all the countries of the world gathered at the United Nations, you watch the gentlemen from the Middle East who wear the long robes and some of them wear hats and turbans. Watch how they walk. These noblemen, watch how they walk. They don't walk like coolmen. They walk with back straight and with dignity. And slowly and calmly. Men in the Middle East never run. Never. I know you like to run, but they never do. Sorry. <laughs> I don't run because I just, you know, I got, I'd get shin splints in a heartbeat, so I'd have to quit. But here's my point. This, in the ancient world, if a noble, nobleman runs, he brings shame to himself and his entire family. Noblemen don't do that, and this one does. He is willing to be, everybody will look at this father running out to this son and say, oh my word, what a fool he is. Shame on him. But he doesn't. See the compassion? You see the point? Okay. And he throws his arms around him, and he kisses him. So what's the father just done with his boy? It's the F word. What is it? He's forgiven him. The actions show the father's forgiveness. Got it? This, now, what's the parallel here? Think of Romans. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were yet ungodly, Christ died for us. There's nobody who's a sinner ungodly more than this boy. And God the Father does these things. Compassion runs out to him. Throws his arms around him and kidnapped out by kisses on the cheeks, etc., maybe even on the lips. Because in the, in the Middle East, in the ancient world, that's no big deal. Okay? That's reconciliation with the kisses. That's the point. Oh, and by the way, so if, if you've got a Bible concordance or if you're interested, I'm going to really get in trouble here. But in Paul's epistles in the New Testament, towards the end of some of his epistles, remember his epistles were read as sermons. And so after the sermon was over, they'd, they'd, be, they'd get ready for what in the church? The Lord's Supper. And Paul says, greet one another with a holy what? Some of you know it. Say it loudly, those of you who know. Yes. Kiss. Now some of you are saying, what? That's in the Bible. Yes, that's right. That's in the Bible. So why would they do that in the early church? I'm not saying that we have to do that here. Don't misunderstand me. But in the early church, before communion... The Christians would give, greet one another with a holy kiss. Why? To say that they are reconciled to one another through the Lord Jesus Christ. And that they would therefore bring no disunity, anger, hatred, or whatever to the Lord's Supper against a fellow believer. Does that make sense? That's very important. All right, now. The son then enacts his plan. And notice what gets dropped off. Verse 21. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven. Yep, that's true. And against you. Yep, that's true. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. That's true. But notice what gets dropped off. Make me like one of your hired men. That gets dropped off. Why? Because he now knows that the father has forgiven him and that the father is going to treat him not as a hired man, but as a son. 
Let's finish it. The father said to his servants, verse 22, quick, bring the best robe. That's how you treat a son. Put it on him. Put a ring on his finger. That's not how you treat servants. That's how you treat a son. Sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. You don't do that for servants. You do that for members of the family. Let's have a feast and let's celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. This illustrates God the Father. What it means to be Father. Waiting, waiting, waiting. And when the sinner comes back, what do you do? You forgive. Thanks be to God. I'm glad, I'm glad that my father treats me like that. And this is why Paul says in Ephesians 6, which we'll look at in detail another day. In Ephesians 6 says that fathers are not to, you know this? They are not to exasperate their children. That's one of the English terms. They are not to exasperate their children. One of the examples that you can exasperate your children is when a child sins against you and they come to you as dad and say, will you forgive me? And dad says, no. No way. You're going to pay for that. You know what I mean when I say that? And then, well, are they ever going to come back to you for anything? I, they will not. They simply will not. They'll just give you two middle fingers and they're gone. Never see them again. Okay. That's part of that. Now, do you have any questions so far the point I'm trying to make here? God the Father, how he exercises his fatherhood here in this parable. Any questions about that? It's delicious. Yes, please. Yeah, brilliant point. Just in case you didn't hear it, Dorothy's point is this. When the son made his plan, he was going to call the shots when it came to the reconciliation. But when he finally gets home, who calls the shots of the reconciliation? Not the boy. God the Father does. Thank you. Is that your point? Yeah. yeah, that's the brilliant point. Now, you can continue to read the rest of it. And the older son, who was given his share of the inheritance, he doesn't like it when his father receives this boy back. And what we learn is, who's really the lost son? It's the one who stayed home. Because he doesn't trust his father. The father, I, I've given you everything, the father says. Come in, have a Cuban. Have some of the best port wine I've got. You know, from Lebanon or Greece. But he won't go in. All right, Galatians 4. Let's go to the Galatians 4, please. Again, how does God exercise his fathership? This is absolutely huge. And again, totally delicious. Salvationally, that is. Galatians 4, 4 to 5. <clears throat> so, you know, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, then Galatians. How do you remember Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians? How do you remember that? Go eat popcorn. Go eat popcorn. That's right. There we go. General Electric Power Company. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. I got to remember that. General Electric Power Company. Perfect. Now I got two. All right, you got Galatians? Check it out. Again, the love of our Father. God the Father, who actually is Father. What does he do for us? Check it out. But when the time had fully come. I want to say something about this. When the time had fully come. That is to say, all of Earth's history, before this happened, before this took place, all the Earth's history was working towards this. Christ's death on the cross. So again, side note, but it's worth repeating. 
History. If some of you who love history, and if you go to college and you're going to be a history major, history is not just serendipitous. Namely, it's not accidental. God, before he sent his son, worked all history for that exact moment. And so, when the time had fully come, everything that God had been working for prior, through Adam, Abraham, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, what happened? God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, namely the Ten Commandments and all its accusations, to do what? To redeem those under the law. That we might, and this is a kicker here, check this out, that we might receive the full rights of sons. Now we live, we live in a woke culture. And so in this woke culture, when we when the woke culture hears sons, they go ape, you know what? Fill in the blank. And again, they'll say, misogyny, misogyny, women haters. That's what misogyny means. Hatred of women. Misogyny. And so when they translate their Bible, they'll say men and women. And they miss the point. Why does Paul say that Jesus has redeemed us so that we receive the full rights of sons? Here's the point. In the ancient world, and still in some parts of the world to this day, who gets the inheritance? The youngest son? Who does? The oldest son. The point Paul's making is that in Jesus Christ, no matter what your gender, no matter what your race, God the Father treats you as the eldest son. You get everything. That's the point. Is it misogyny? No, get over it. That's not the point. You see when you're ignorant of the scriptures, you, you run to stupid things. Misogyny. Not hardly. You see the, 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 just the delicious point. I'm going to repeat it here. When we are considered to be sons and having full rights, it means in Christ everybody is treated as the eldest son. You get it all. The entire inheritance. And that's why Paul in Ephesians 1 in that long run on sentence so that in Christ we have been given all the treasures of heaven. Does that make sense? All right, so that what does it mean for God to be the Father for us? Is that he worked all of history for this moment when Jesus was conceived of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary to die for our salvation. Okay, so now, how is since we're talking about this, now why is history continuing then? By the way, this is the climax of history. I want you to realize this. This is the climax of universal history. Nothing more important can happen. This is it. So why does history continue? Is it serendipitous now? Is it just accidental? Is there a reason why there's all these things going on in the world? Is it just accidental? No. God is using the history of the world for one reason and one reason only. So that we can be what? Repented and faithed and led in holy living. You can read about this in 2 Peter. Peter says this, that the world, the world continues so that you can be led to and others can be led to repentance. And that's why the Lord has a church to make sure that people are brought into the family and all be treated as elder sons. I hope that's helpful for you. Does that make sense? All right, let's take a couple more minutes here to finish this. Let's go to 1 John 3. <coughs> 1 John chapter 3. So towards the very end of the New Testament... We'll read this passage, make a few comments, and then we'll pray and get out of here. First <clears throat> John 3. 
So if you're at Revelation, you're a little too far. If you're Jude, you're a little too far. Go backwards just a little bit. All right. 1 John chapter 3, starting at verse 1. Now notice this language. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called, and here you have it again, children of God. Namely, we're in a family. Pater, patria. Father, family. They go together. And that, that is what we are. We are God's children through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, the reason the world does not know us as God's children is that it doesn't know who? God the Father. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and we, what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Jesus appears on the last day, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Here's the point. We are God's children. And the world looks at you and says, no, you're not. Because <laughs> they watch how you talk and they watch how you act. And it's a mixed bag. So if they listen to Kuhlman on a Sunday morning, they might say, yeah, I think he might be a Christian. He might be a child of God. But when they're on the golf course following me or if they're ahead of me, they're saying, is he really a Christian? <laughs> or, for example, I'm, now this is just for fun, just for fun. So when we were following Brandon in the van and I couldn't keep up with him, in fun, I was, come on, man, slow down. So it's a mixed bag. So when the world looks at us, they might, on one occasion, say, well, that person might be a Christian. But generally speaking, the world says, these people are not Christians at all. Because we're a mixed bag. We're saints sinners. And so on the last day, when Jesus judges the living and the dead, all those people who said about Kuhlman, like a district president or district presidents who might say, this guy ain't a Christian at all. By the way, I think some district presidents will not want to go to heaven because, because Jesus is going to let Kuhlman in. <laughs> I think so. I really do. I do. I think one of our former district presidents will, will probably refuse to go to heaven because I'm going to go. In any event. So on the last day, the world will see what truly is, what we have now by faith. Then everybody will see that we truly are God's children. All right. Any questions about some of the wild and woolly stuff we've covered here today? <laughs> okay. So then next week... Apologetics. What did our kids learn at Carbondale? I'm going to just, oh, this is going to be great. Let's pray the Lord's Prayer. Prayer.